Our text this morning is Acts, the first 13 verses of chapter 2. We've just begun this series in Acts, and we're seeing the church already grow and mature and have an impact on its community. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is inerrant. It is holy. It is good and authoritative. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own language and our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon our word as we look at it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word, that you would teach us not only what we are to know, but Lord, what we are to do, who we are to be, and how we are to live our lives. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever had that moment? That moment when everything becomes kind of crystal clear. All of the things that had happened in the past and you weren't so sure of, you begin to now understand how they fit in the big puzzle of life. For many of us, this happens when we are first married and first have children. We have these aha moments. So that's why mom couldn't go to sleep when I went out at night. And I said, don't worry about me. Don't wait up. I understand now. As you have your own children. And even babies who can't move, you're constantly... Are they okay? Okay. Yeah, still okay. All right. We do that. We understand why perhaps our parents managed the finances the way they did. And why we didn't go out to eat every day even though we thought we could. 
We may understand why the company that we work for has taken certain steps, things that seemed very odd in the past, and then there's a big announcement, perhaps a merger or an expansion or a call of bankruptcy. That's why the actions were taken, and things fall into place. This is what happens for the church at Pentecost. You see, many describe Pentecost as the birth of the church. And that is true in one sense. But the true birth of the church was Adam and Eve, the people of God. But at Pentecost, something special happens. Something very significant happens. Perhaps the most significant day in the life of the church. This day of Pentecost ranks up there with the incarnation and the resurrection in terms of redemptive history. And as the church looks back, it sees everything making sense. From this point on, we will see prophecies from the Psalms and from Joel and from other prophets. We will see the apostles and the disciples use texts from Genesis and Exodus, and they will see how they make sense now in the light of Jesus. They have taken their course, that famous road to Emmaus course, They have studied with our Lord for 40 days and they have waited for another 10 and now everything makes sense. And so the call for us as Christ Church is to see how things make sense in the grand redemptive plan of our Lord and Savior. And so this morning I would like us to see three things that come from Pentecost. First, I would like us to look at the experience of Pentecost. What is it that exactly happened? And sadly, Pentecost has become like that old trunk in the attic that someone decided to paint red. Then they decided to paint black. And then they decided to paint green. And the layers of gunk have piled up on it. Let us see what exactly has happened at Pentecost. And then secondly, I would like us to see the result of Pentecost. You see, it is not just what happens in that room on Pentecost. It is the result of what God does, not only in His church, but in the world. And then finally, we will see the response of Pentecost. And we will see that the response to this wonderful, miraculous, spectacular thing is quite similar to what we we experience every day as we testify to our Lord Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods, our homes, and our workplaces. So let us look first then at the experience of Pentecost. What is it that exactly happens? Well, in a nutshell, in the Cliff Notes version, what happens here is the disciples experience the power of God and the presence of God. They see God in their midst in a very spectacular and special way. And the first thing they see is the power of God. They are gathered all together in one place... And again, we see here they are obeying the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told them to wait, and they are waiting. They're waiting patiently. Even now, after they have chosen Judas' replacement, they are still waiting for the promise to come, even as Jesus has said. And they have not lost in this waiting one bit of their unity. They are waiting all together. They are of one mind. They are of one accord. They are gathered together in one place. Now, don't lose the specialness of this. At Christ Church, 
many of us think, and I think rightly, that we are blessed by a church where people genuinely love to be together. You have to literally kick people out of here on Sunday night. It's 45 minutes past when the supper is over, and the duty deacon, and usually John and I are standing on the side saying, you know, we would like to go home to bed. Because people genuinely love to be around one another. But look here. These Christians are around one another all the time. And you know what a challenge that can be in a family. But here the whole church is gathered all together. They are obeying the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God responds in their midst. Suddenly, it was a day just like any other day. It was any other old Wednesday or Monday or Thursday. They didn't know it was coming. They were doing the deeds of life just as they had done the day before. Living out their faith. And suddenly God breaks into their midst. There came from heaven. So there was no mistaking. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house. God enters into their presence suddenly, immediately. You see, there is no timetable for God. You must be prepared for Him to enter into your life and to change its course forever, every day. Every day as you wake up, you may say, this may be the day that the Lord may point me in a different direction. He may ask of me new things. He may point me on to great deeds. This is what happened to the disciples. And this wind comes down. Now, you have to understand that the word for wind is the same word as the word for spirit. You see, we tend to use the word spirit differently. We ascribe it perhaps solely to the Holy Spirit or our spirit. Or as I was driving down uh, the road the other day, one of my children asked me, why is this place called Wine and Spirits? And I had to explain that. You see, we don't think of linking spirit with wind. But in Hebrew, in Greek, in Latin, in many languages, the word for spirit is the word for wind. There is a connotation. And we are to think about the power of the wind with the power of the spirit. You cannot say spirit in either Hebrew or Greek without conjuring up a breath of air. Ruach. Pneuma. You must aspirate. It is the spirit. They are linked one together. And like the wind, the Spirit is such that you cannot see Him, but you can see His effects. Did you do that perhaps Saturday morning, early Saturday morning? I was sitting in my office, and shades were moving across my window. So I rolled up the blinds, and the trees were moving as the wind was pushing them. Big, large pine trees. The wind is moving them. Perhaps some of you have seen this in storms. You look out and you see huge winds, huge oaks bent by the wind. The power of the Spirit, the power of the wind. We lose sight of this. In Genesis chapter 1, the world is created. Do you remember how it is created? Out of chaos, the Spirit of God hovers over the deep. And sadly, I think, because of our visual culture and our 
desire in current Christianity to depict God in picture form, we think we get in our mind's eye a little teeny tiny dove flitting over the water. Because that's, of course, what the Holy Spirit looks like, isn't it? When in reality, we should think of a huge wind, a gale, whipping up the sea, the power of Almighty God in our midst. That is the kind of spirit that God is. God is not a tame spirit. He is a powerful, mighty being, mightier than anything we could ever imagine. This is Paul's view of the spirit, isn't it? Because not only did the spirit of God hover over the chaos of creation and make it whole, Paul says that the spirit of God hovers over the chaos of sin and creates you a new creation. That is creation done again by the Spirit of God. What power. He molds the world. He forms sinners into saints. It's the work of the Spirit of God. It's so significant that this new creation that the Spirit has wrought causes us to change the Lord's Day from Saturday to Sunday. That is why Sunday is the Lord's Day. Because the new creation in Christ marks an entire new era It is the beginning of the end that God has intended. You know this sound, this sound of the wind that Luke talks about here. Some of you may have heard reports of the tornado that went through Yazoo City in Mississippi. It cut a swath through, destroyed a church, killed ten. And they interviewed a man and he said he was sitting in his house... They interviewed him. He was looking through the window and the roof of his home had been ripped off. And they asked him, what was it like? And he said, it was like a freight train. It was the loudest thing I had ever heard. And that's quite different from the kind of wind we picture sitting in a hammock or an easy chair. The sound of this wind is unbelievable. The power of God. The Spirit of God is powerful. He is a creator. He is also the bringer of life. Do you remember how Adam received life at the first in Genesis 2 and verse 7? God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And he became a living being. Do you remember how those dry bones were made new, were made alive again? The Spirit of God breathed upon them. And this is why in perhaps the most famous text about new life, when our Lord speaks to Nicodemus, he describes the Christian as one who is born of the Spirit. This is the power of God in the midst of the church. But God also provides for them his presence. You remember our Lord Jesus said to them, I must go, but I will send to you the Spirit. I will send to you the Helper. You see, Jesus was not about to leave them alone. He didn't leave them with a manual. I think sometimes we think that the church is like these TV characters who find a manual to some kind of super device or powerful suit or book and they have to figure it out on their own to know what they can do. No, we do have God's manual, but He does not leave us alone to figure out His book. He brings us His Spirit who illumines our minds and our hearts who brings the word to bear to us. And so he does here to the disciples. 
He does it not only through wind, but through fire. Do you see? And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, fire in the Bible, you must understand, is almost always, or at least very frequently, a sign of the presence of God. Do you remember when Israel went through the wilderness? By day they had what? The pillar of cloud. What did they have by night? To remind them that God had not left them while they were sleeping. The pillar of fire. When Abraham was the subject of a covenant with God in Genesis 15, when the animals were divided and Abraham slept, God reminded him that he was Abraham's God through the the smoking pot and the burning torch. This sign of fire is a sign of the presence of God. And you'll notice what happens here, that this fire rests over each one of the disciples here. The the word where it says it rested on them is actually the word for sat. It went above them and stayed there. Now, notice it doesn't say that the divided tongues of fire sat over the apostles or over Peter or even the men. What did the, whom did the fire go over? Every single one of them. The presence of God was available to every one of them. Not just to leaders like Moses, not just to prophets like Isaiah, not just to leaders in the church like Peter. No, every single one of them had the powerful presence of God over them. You see, when we think of this, it's, it's difficult to describe what is a tongue of fire. Is it like a little whisk of fire? Is it a big flame? What does it mean? If you're not sure, you're in good company because you may notice that Luke finds it hard to describe. He says there is a sound like a a mighty rushing wind and there are tongues as of fire. They're not exactly wind. They're not exactly fire, but they are like it. He's trying to describe it and he's having a great deal of difficulty because this is unique. This fire rests over each one of them. And what does fire bring? You see, this is where we are handicapped living in a blessed country in the 21st century. You see, when I need to see something, I walk over to a light switch and I turn it on or off. And I have light. When I'm cold, I walk over to a thermostat and I hit a few buttons and I'm wonderfully comfortable. But you see, in the ancient world, fire was critical. It was fire that brought light. You had two sources of light in all of the world, the sun and fire. If you wanted to be enlightened, if you wanted to see, if you wanted to know, you must have fire. So it shouldn't surprise us that that is what God uses as an example here. He is bringing light to the church. He is bringing knowledge to the church. Not just knowledge of things but knowledge of each other, knowledge of himself. But he's also bringing what fire also brings. That is warmth. When you are cold, ladies, 
Is there anything better on a cold winter night than turning on the fireplace and pulling your chair up within about a foot of it? Put your feet up on the, I don't know what you call the bottom mantle. It's not a mantle, the stoop. And you warm yourself by it. And it's hard to get the ladies especially away from that because it's colder in other areas of the house. But warmth is more than about physical comfort, isn't it? Because we talk about warmth and comfort in terms of food, don't we? Comfort foods. We talk about it in terms of clothes. We have our favorite sweater, our favorite pair of pants, our favorite slippers. We think about it in terms of times when the family is around. The warmth and comfort that the dinner table brings as we encourage one another. Or perhaps as we visit family from out of town or have friends into our home. You see, warmth is about more than just physical comfort. It is about relationship. It is about warmth to our soul. And you see, God would have his church not only be enlightened in their head, but be warmed in their soul. This is what he is bringing to the people of God. He is bringing them his powerful presence. He is bringing them light and warmth. This is what they experienced on the day of Pentecost. And so what happens as a result of it? We hear this story about the wind. We hear about the fire. We're not exactly sure what it is, but we know it's something significant. Well, what happens as a result of Pentecost? The first thing that we see that happens is that the world is changed. And I mean that. The world will never be the same after Pentecost. And God makes sure that we are aware of this. And so what happens is, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they are all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, you must be aware of what is going on here. There are some today who will claim that this type of speaking in tongues was some form of babbling. No language at all. Hard to understand. And they will impress you with their ability to speak in tongues by saying very profound things like, and you think, what? This is supposed to be spiritual. This is supposed to be edifying. And most importantly, this is in the text. Because the text says that men from every nation under heaven, they heard the speech and it was in their own language. And the text is very clear. His own language, and then again in verse 8, his native language. The language of the country in which he was born. The text is very clear. It's as if the Lord knew exactly how this text would be abused which of course he did. And so they hear this speech in their own language. So what is going on here? Why is the Lord working in this way? Because after all, every single one of these devout Jews that are there would have known either Aramaic, which is a form of Hebrew, remember our study in the book of Daniel, or Greek. There was no reason to use any other language. It's kind of like when we travel to foreign countries, nine people out of ten know English. And the one person out of ten that doesn't know it, we solve that problem simply by speaking louder. And that resolves that issue. 
But you see, Greek and Aramaic were just as widespread as English is today. All of them knew that language. So why the significance of speaking each other's language? Now, it is not that they are speaking different languages. They are speaking and everyone is hearing in their own language. What's happening here is a piece of the puzzle is dropping into place. God is explaining the past. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis. Genesis. Chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, we see all of the nations listed. This is a familiar device called a table of nations. You'll see it in histories. It's the kind of thing in history books that students can't stand. A list of names that make no sense and they can't pronounce. But it's describing all of the people who are descended from Noah. Because after all, we are all not only descendants of Adam, we are all descendants of Noah because of the flood. And then in verse 11, uh, excuse me, in chapter 11, we see this. Now the whole earth had how many languages? One. And the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And in verse 5, we see as they build this tower, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men had built. They built to make a name for themselves. And the Lord came down, and in verse 7, he confused their languages so that they could not understand one another's speech. And then the Lord dispersed them. So you see, the great sin after Noah is an exaltation of man as God. Let We will build a name for ourselves. We will be the ones. We will be remembered forever. Does this sound anything like the modern world? Constantly, men, women, and children are building a name for themselves to get the most money, the most exploration, the furthest reaches into space, the best inventions. And God confounds their language and they are spread out. And from that day on, there is the difficulty of language. You all know how difficult it is to communicate when we speak the same language and the same dialect, the same form of English. I don't know how many forms of English there are, but there are many. How difficult is it when you have no idea what the other person's language is. You can't say simple things like thirsty or hungry or tired. You see, this is what happens as a result of sin. But now here we see in Acts chapter 2 something remarkable happening. God is putting Babel in reverse. He is undoing sin. He is crushing the kingdom of Shinar and Babylon, that same kingdom that we had seen would be crushed all throughout Daniel, and he is establishing his kingdom. And his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. It is a kingdom of knowledge. It is a kingdom of communication. It is a kingdom of unity. We see in the book of Revelation that all of God's people will be gathered together into one city. They will dwell together with the living God. We will be no more scattered or dispersed. God is telling us that right here at Pentecost, He is putting His stamp that victory is His. 
He is beginning the reversal of the curse. And he does this in an interesting fashion. These nations that are listed here, the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites, Judea and Cappadocia, Phrygia and Asia, all of these places, it's, a, it's as if someone were looking at a map and sweeping from east to west. And it includes great powers like Parthia, which is the successor to the Persian Empire. And in that last phrase, Luke brings special attention to Rome. There are those who are there from Rome, those who are both Jews and proselytes, that is, those who were Gentiles converted to Judaism. You see, Luke is telling us here the end of the story that Daniel had begun. Daniel had said that fourth beast will be crushed. That powerful empire will be no more. And Luke says, this is God starting to make it happen right now. And we'll see in months to come, as Paul lands at Rome, that Luke tells us that this is still going on. You see, God is reversing the curse and he is doing it everywhere. This is not just the next step in the kingdom. This is the sign that the kingdom is here and it is culminated. It is announced to everyone. You see, this is the perfect time for God to do this. It's 40 days after the Passover and then another 10 days at the Feast of Pentecost. And it is during this time that the population of Jerusalem would swell between four and ten times its size as Jews from all over the world came to celebrate the Passover and Pentecost. You understand how that looks and what that means? It would be like, as you recall from last week's missions conference, if you went to Clemson to announce something, and you went on July 9th, when no one was in school, and there were 20 or 30,000 people in the town, as opposed if you went there on September 9th, on a football Saturday, when there'd be perhaps 150,000 people in the town. That's what's happening here. God is spreading His word of His kingdom all throughout the universe. And that is in His purposes. He is fulfilling that the ends of the earth will be His. This is the inspiration for that line in that wonderful hymn, that His mercy goes far as the curse is found. To Parthians, to Romans, to Mesopotamians, to Jews, to Gentiles. The world is changed forever at Pentecost. The second thing that we see is that God's people are changed. It's not just the world and power structures that are changed. It's God's people that are changed. Because as a result of the Spirit coming, you see this interesting phrase that they are all Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this phrase causes no level of consternation among modern American Christians. Some would like it to be equated to a secondary event. Something that happens to you after you become a Christian and you get some kind of special gift or benefit. Like you become great at evangelism. Or you speak in tongues. Or some other secret gift that lower class don't get. 
Who is filled with the Spirit here? Everyone. Do you notice also what's not said here that's interesting? The Holy Spirit came down and filled them, and it wasn't after a specially called powerful prayer meeting. They might have been getting ready for lunch or have just finished up breakfast. You see, being filled with the Spirit is not something that comes to to first-class Christians. It comes to all Christians. And it's described in the Bible in many ways. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, our our Lord describes it as being uh, baptized, or excuse me, receiving power with the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, it is described as being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Later on, in Chapter 2, verse 38, Peter will describe it as receiving the Holy Spirit. Here it is being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is the power of God permanently indwelling the believer. And this is where the cross makes a difference. Throughout the Old Testament, you see men, women who are filled with the Holy Spirit for specific tasks, like designing the tabernacle, building the temple, going off to war and winning victory like some of the judges did. But here now we see that every single Christian is filled with the Spirit. The weakest among us has the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Power that can change the world. So should we fear? Should we be timid? Paul says to Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. That is a spirit you have, beloved. It doesn't just belong to pastors. It doesn't just belong to officers. It belongs to everyone. It doesn't even just belong to adults. Every child that has claimed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ has the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this power is the way to describe the change from the Old to the New Testament is something like this. It's the difference between the water that flows out of a dam and when the dam breaks. It's the same stream. But what has been holding it back is gone. And that powerful flow of water comes and encompasses all around it. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what we see here is exactly what happens to these disciples. They immediately go out into the streets. They had been hiding in a room for 50 days. First, they were not sure what to do. Then our Lord came. Then they waited. And now they go out in the streets. Because you see, at the sound, verse 6, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Now, we may fill in the gaps and think that the multitude heard the sound of the mighty rushing wind. They did not. They heard the sound of the disciples out in the streets praising the Lord in language that they could tell. God's people had gone forth into the streets and they could not stop but sing His praises. And you see, this is really what the filling of the Spirit means. Wherever the Spirit is, Christ's name and His story are. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, if you want to be spiritual, it doesn't result in trying to take on supernatural gifts. It's testifying to your Lord and Savior. It's speaking the great truths of God. It's defending the Scriptures. 
That is a spiritual activity. And we see the gospel expand as it goes out as this ragtag band of disciples is empowered by the Spirit. Well, we've looked at the experience that has come on Pentecost and we have seen the result of that experience. But now we must look briefly and see what the response of Pentecost is. And this I am so glad that we have. Because you see, I am tempted, perhaps like you, to say, you know, if we only had the power of Elijah or Elisha, if we could only call down fire from heaven, if we could only take a rod and throw it and make it become a snake, if we could only do these wonderful, miraculous deeds that we read all about in the Old Testament, if we could only tame wild lions kill people with the jawbone of an ass, then the gospel would go forward in America. But you see, we don't have that. All we have is this Bible. And we go out and people ignore us. And they make fun of us. And they come up with names about us. If only we had that power. But you see, this text tells us that the reaction is the same. You see, there is a bona fide miracle going on here. People are speaking languages that they should not be able to speak. This goes against all of the facts. You see, they can even tell that they are Galileans. And you need to know that that's a slur. Galileans is not a great thing to be because Jesus was Jesus of Galilee. Galilean is an N-word. And you can tell by the way they talk. You can tell by their hick accent. These are guys... They can't put two and two together. These are guys that you try and make change for the twenty for a twenty five, six times and come back with fifty dollars. These are guys you make fun of. And yet they know Parthian, they know Latin, they know the language of Mesopotamia, they know the language of Cappadocia, they know all of these dialects. How can this possibly happen? This is a bona fide miracle. And the response of the world is what? Oh, they're drunk. Now think about that. Not only is it dismissive, it's against every fact. You know what someone sounds like when they're drunk. They can't even put words together, let alone speak in another language. When was the last time you saw a drunk speak Urdu or Mandarin Chinese? It doesn't happen. But that's the way the world reacts. It's the same way that they will react to you. No matter how crisp your arguments are, no matter how many Bible verses you have, if they are not of God's elect or if He is not calling them to Himself, they will say to you, you're a nutbag. You're stupid. You're drunk. Because that's the way the world reacts to spirit power. Don't be surprised. But also be confident. Because some of these same people that said, oh, they're drunk. In just a bit in Acts, we'll be saying, Jesus is Lord. Because that's the power of the Spirit. God doesn't expect these disciples to go out on their own. He doesn't expect you to go out on your own. Finally, we see a different kind of reaction from the believers. Do you notice it here in verse 12? They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And in verse 7, they were all amazed and astonished. 
And in verse 6, they were bewildered. They don't know what to do. They're seeing the work of God in their midst. And it's beyond anything that they could have imagined. Yet remember, this is exactly what Christ told them would happen. That he would send the Spirit. But you see, it went beyond anything that they could imagine. This is true for you too, beloved. Do you think you know what heaven will be like? You don't. Do you think you know what it will be like to sit at the foot of the king? You don't. Do you think you understand God's law? You don't. I don't. We don't understand the depth of the magnificence and the glory that is God. We are amazed and bewildered. And if you think about it, when we see God act in our midst in a powerful way, that's what we are, aren't we? We are amazed and bewildered. Wow. Don't lose that sense of amazement. Don't think that just because you have walked with the Lord for years that it's humdrum or that it's business as usual. There is amazement found in the work of the Spirit of God. At Pentecost and Sunday, April 25th. Let's pray. Thank you.